Welcome to Tisky Sour, where tonight we are talking about strikes, 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 and strikes, and coal mines as well, interestingly. Dahlia, how are you doing? Doing good. Always like a show where we're talking about strikes all the time, so it suits me well. <laughs> there, there are a lot of them. We were not struggling for strike content this evening, as will become apparent throughout the show, although I imagine many of our audience are already aware. Many of our audience, uh, you know, I imagine quite a few of you are due to be going on strike over the next few weeks. Another day, another set of strikes to put on the Christmas calendar. The UK Border Force staff are the latest group to announce industrial action over the festive holidays. That dispute, which is over pay and conditions, will mean passport checks will be disrupted at major airports from the 23rd of December to Boxing Day and then from the 28th of December to New Year's Eve. Also today, members of the Fire Brigade Union have marched on Westminster. They're being balanced on whether to strike over pay. They've been offered a 5% increase, far below inflation, which is currently at 11%. But the most attention this week has been on the RMT, who have announced new strike dates from the 24th until the 27th of December, and on ambulance drivers, who are going on strike on the 21st of December. Workers in the ambulance service are striking principally over pay, but members have also been clear that this is also about a broader crisis in the NHS. Reporting from the BBC Today made the extent of that catastrophe clear. Is she breathing at least twice every 10 seconds? I have no idea. When Darren Child's 12-month-old daughter, Myla, had a seizure and for a time stopped breathing, it took 47 minutes for the ambulance to come. The target for the average response time on such a serious life-or-death call is seven minutes. It was horrendous. It's every parent's worst nightmare. Mercifully, Darren's daughter survived, but sadly, many do not. Data obtained by Newsnight through a Freedom of Information request paints a worrying picture. In the whole of 2020, West Midlands Ambulance Service had just one patient who was dead by the time the ambulance turned up following a delay. So far this year, up until September, the total is 37, and that is with three months' data still to come. As we've heard repeatedly, one of the big problems is ambulances being stuck outside hospitals, unable to hand over patients. Over a single day, Newsnight journalists monitored ambulances at five hospitals covered by West Midlands Ambulance Service to see just how bad the problem is right now. On the day we recorded data, the longest an ambulance had to wait to hand over a patient was at Worcester Royal, 21 hours, at Princess Royal Hospital in Telford, 19 hours, at Alexandra Hospital in Redditch, 8 hours, at Royal Stoke, 15 hours, and at Royal Shrewsbury, more than 20 hours. Problems at the Ambulance Trust go far deeper than just delays. The number of serious incidents defined as an avoidable serious outcome caused by problems with care has shot up over 400% so far this year, compared with the same period last year. However, half of them are not directly attributed to delays. Some trivia I learnt during that video, head of video, Noara Media, was born in the Royal Shrewsbury, presumably at a time when ambulances came a little bit sooner than they currently do. Now, that report went on to suggest that even deaths not directly attributable to delays in the ambulance service, but where you know, something has gone wrong, they might still be indirectly caused by delays. And that's because this situation where you've got backed up ambulances means paramedics leave the service and we end up with less experienced staff. Obviously, if you don't feel like you can do your job well, 
you end up demoralized if you're sitting in ambulances for 20 hours because you can't offload your patients. You know, you're not going to come home feeling fulfilled. You're going to come home feeling anxious and, and depressed. So that's the dire context in which ambulance workers are taking strike action. The leader of GMB, so that's the union which represents thousands of ambulance workers, or one of the unions which represents ambulance workers, he made that point on the BBC. It's not industrial action that's posing a threat to the service. It's over a decade of cuts. This has been a long-running developing crisis and the government has simply refused to listen up to now. We could actually end up in the really perverse position when we put on emergency cover and we'll negotiate that at local level. We may actually have more cover on strike days than on normal days. That's the impact that cuts have had in the service over a decade. Just to explain that, you, you're saying there could be more on duty, what, because they'll bring in extra crews or maybe the army to provide backup? They, they will be wanting to talk to us about what emergency cover looks like. And we could end up, we think, in those local discussions with trusts looking for more cover than they're providing at the moment. The reality is we have had 10 years of pay cuts for staff across the NHS, including the ambulance service. They can't recruit and retain staff. 130,000 plus vacancies in the health service uh, at the moment. Real terms, pay cuts across the piece in the health service. And the cuts to services are decimating the service that is being provided to communities across the country. People are dying because of cuts. That's not hyperbole, it's a fact. That was Gary Smith of the GMB making that point incredibly well. And I mean, everyone I've heard sort of representing the ambulance drivers, we talked about this before as well with the nurses. They're always, it's always put to them, aren't you going to be endangering lives? And it's just, you can't seriously ask that question when without a strike, you've got ambulances waiting 20 hours to unload a patient. And you've got people waiting an hour when their baby has stopped breathing. You, you can't seriously ask a worker, is your strike going to put lives at risk when this many lives are being put at risk you know, every day? And I mean, as that BBC report, I should say very good BBC report you know, on, on, the, on the problems in, in the service, showing there are many people dying every month from not being seen quick enough. And that was just in, in one region, right? So if, you, if you're looking nationwide, it's going to be much more. Now, the health secretary, Steve Barclay, he's, of course, responsible for the collapsing health service. He doesn't seem interested in meeting the demands of NHS staff. This was his message to ambulance drivers and all other striking workers. If everyone in the public sector were to receive a pay rise in line with inflation, that would cost an extra £28 billion, an extra £1,000 per household. And at a time of huge cost of living pressures, it's important we get that balance right between what additional tax we ask viewers to pay at a time of cost of living pressure, alongside recognising that paramedics and the NHS as a whole have faced very real challenges as a result of the pandemic. I should have said that was his message to all public sector workers, because of course, um, he's saying it's if we give them wages which are in line with inflation or pay rises in line with inflation, that would cost um, £26 billion. Now, according to Tax Justice UK, if we introduced effective wealth taxes, that could raise £37 billion. So Steve Barclay, maybe ask your wealthy mates to pay a bit more instead of asking everyone else to take a pay cut. Of course, taxing the rich doesn't seem to be the intention or priority of any of the Tories in government right now. And the main response from Rishi Sunak to worker unrest has been to promise further legal restrictions on the right to strike. He said this at PMQs today. 
It's right that he brought up legislation with regard to strikes, and I'm very happy to address it, actually. So hard-working families right now in this country are facing challenges. The government has been reasonable. It's accepted the recommendations of an independent payroll body, giving pay rises in many cases higher than the private sector. But if the union leaders to continue to be unreasonable, then it is my duty to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the British public. And that's why, Mr Speaker, since I became Prime Minister, I have been working for new tough laws to protect people from this disruption. That's the legislation he's asking about. Will he now confirm that he'll stand up for working people and that he and his party will back that legislation? So Keir Starmer avoided the question which was put to him there by Rishi Sunak. But Ed Miliband made clear on the BBC straight afterwards that Labour would oppose more restrictive strike laws. Earlier today, I spoke to Polly Smythe, Navarra Media's Labour movement correspondent, and I asked her to explain the nature of Sunak's proposed trade union laws. The strike laws that Rishi Sunak is proposing, they're about minimum level of services. So you remember when Liz Truss was very briefly Prime Minister that she spoke about introducing minimum level of services on the railways when the RMT dispute was kind of a bit more at the beginning and she said she'd have that done within the first 30 days and obviously that didn't happen and now that bill um, hasn't even reached its second reading within the House of Commons. So what Rishi Sunak is saying is, is quite similar to, to what Liz Truss had been saying but he's kind of expanding it out and saying that it could be applied to workers who are striking in other industries, most noticeably healthcare. I mean it's, it's really unlikely that that would be able to be introduced before December, which is where the, most of the healthcare strikes are, are planned for. You know, and it's important to note as well that we actually have already got some new anti-strike legislation that's been introduced back in the summer. There was a bill that was introduced that allowed companies to plug staffing gaps caused by strikes with agency workers. And that's currently something we're seeing right now at Harrods. You know, but I think the way in which um, Rishi Sunak was talking is really indicative. You know, when he was speaking about introducing this legislation, he was saying, you know, union leaders continue to be unreasonable, which is just really indicative of his approach because, you know, it's not union leaders who are driving this strike way forward. It is members, you know, who are pissed off fundamentally, who are pissed off at, you know, the erosion of their terms and conditions and who are pissed off overpay. And let's talk about ambulance workers because they seem, I suppose, more than pissed off. They almost seem quite traumatised, you know, by the service or by by the terrible service they're being forced to deliver because there isn't the capacity to deliver a, a good one. Can you talk about their strike? And I suppose especially, we talked about nurses recently and how their strike was fairly unprecedented. I don't think they'd gone on strike for a century. Is it a similar situation when it comes to ambulance drivers? I mean, it's fairly unprecedented. The last national ambulance driver strike was in 1989 and 1990, you know, and that saw the military brought in to kind of to strike break and, and to provide a service. So yeah, you know, it is pretty unprecedented. You know, we've got three unions coming out and strike together. We've got Unite, GMB and Unison. Um, no, it's noticeable that Unison didn't actually reach the ballot threshold, the kind of government's um, very strict anti-strike threshold in, in all of its trusts. But that being said, there still will be a notable number of ambulance workers, you know, that's paramedics, you know, emergency care assistants, um, call handlers out on strike. And, and it's a strike that's kind of, for the spirit of the NHS, really, you know, I think that the NHS is facing a kind of an existential threat um, and ambulance drivers are kind of often at the, the coal, you know, the coalface of that, really. You know, they are unable to accept calls because they're stuck waiting at hospitals because hospitals can't discharge patients because there isn't adequate social care provisions. Um, and so, you know, ambulance workers being out on strike is interesting because it shows us how connected 
all workers across the NHS are, you know, and obviously you mentioned the nurses being on strike, you know, the British Medical Association, they're you know, currently balloting members. So yeah, it's a really bad time for the NHS. And finally, let's talk about the timing of all of this. It all seems to be happening at Christmas. So why, why do we have all of these strikes bunched up at Christmas? Is it a coincidence? Is that a strategy? Are you insinuating, uh, you following the Mick Lynch, Mick Brinch line? Uh, no, I mean, I think that, you know, a big reason is that um, a lot of these disputes are ongoing. You know, a lot of them are disputes that we still saw begin in the summer and are kind of rumbling on. But also, um, you know, the other reason is that Christmas presents us with, you know, all presents unions with a good opportunity. Christmas is a fantastic tool of leverage, you know, to use kind of over employers. You know, I think that sometimes we forget in discussions around public support for unions that, you know, the union's aim and, and a strike's aim is to secure maximum chaos, you know, maximum disruption. And obviously, if you can say to employers, you know, well, you know, people's nans aren't going to be able to come for Christmas, you know, uh, the letters that children write to Santa are not going to go delivered. And that's your fault for not coming to the negotiating table. That's really powerful. Um, and so I think that's, you know, a, a big reason why um, we're seeing a lot of these strikes bunched up around Christmas. That was Polly Smyer speaking to me earlier today. Um, I want to show you now a chart that the BBC had on, on their website today. I think they put it up yesterday, actually. It's showing the extent of the strikes this Christmas. So you've got between now and the 7th of January, 12 days of railway strikes, six days of Royal Mail strikes, two days of nurses strikes, two days of ambulance workers. You've got four days of buses, although I think that's more sort of local. It's not necessarily a, a nationwide thing. 20 days of driving examiners. And you've got a couple of days of teachers in Scotland, three days of baggage handlers. Uh, I think they're one particular group in Heathrow. And then what's not added here, because it was announced since this was made, was the border force having, I think, around six days of strike, passport checkers and the like. Dahlia, this is kind of nothing like I've ever seen in my lifetime. You know, people a bit older than us will talk about the, the winter of discontent. Um, in the late 70s. Although I should also say, actually, even even with all of these strikes, we still have a very comparatively low level of industrial action compared to most of the world. So this isn't like, oh my God, strikes have got out of control. But relative to the historically low levels of strikes that we have been having for the past few years, this is notable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, shout out to the militant driving examiners wing of the labor movement. Um, love to see it. I think Firstly, I just want to say that everything that Polly said and everything that was also said in the in the previous segment about the ways in which the media often portrays these moments um, and when sectors like the ambulances and the nurses go on strike, you know, it, it, it makes it can make for very scary headlines. Right. And the right wing media has really run with that. We've seen, you know, in the Telegraph, the headline isn't about, you know, why these workers are going on strike and the crisis that we're in in the NHS because of austerity. The headline is, you know, that the elderly people who fall might not have an ambulance come to see them. It's a scary thought, especially over Christmas. But that same newspaper not only has not reported, not been adequately reporting on the fact that people have not been receiving adequate ambulance support for a really long time, but those kind of newspapers have actually been really complicit in establishing the kind of narrative around austerity that has put us here in the first place. And so I think it's really good to see that um, that message discipline and the fact that the the ambulance union is not allowing this to be portrayed in that in that way. 
Um, and, you know, just as Polly said, um, this is an issue across the public sector and particularly of wages and working conditions being so bad that there is essentially a recruitment crisis. And we're seeing this in so many sectors that are not only the public sector, but are sectors that we should have learned from the pandemic are essential work sectors, whether it's childcare, whether it's nursing, whether it's, you know, being a paramedic. These are all sectors where, despite the fact that a lot of people are trained up by the public sector, the wages and the conditions are so bad that they just can't retain the staff because you can't actually provide for yourself and your loved ones on the salary and the working conditions that the sector offers. And I think in terms of, of what we're going to, to see now moving forward, as you've said, this isn't the most significant wave of strike action that we've seen in British history. The winter of, dis- you know, it actually is very small in comparison to the winter of discontent, but it's still the most the government has had to deal with in a really long time. And so I think we are going to see an incredibly difficult, hot conflict between the Conservative Party and the labour movement. And it's not just because we have a more organised labour movement, but because the government is going to deploy some really nasty, extreme, Thatcherite tactics in order to quell this. I think we actually haven't seen anything yet in comparison of what's coming. And that's going to look like a few things. It's going to look like really intense media smearing, which we're seeing kind of the beginnings of. We're going to see a lot of um, pitting workers against one another, which is what we saw in that Rishi Sunak speech, where he put hardworking families and members of the British public in opposition to striking workers, as if the paramedics that are going on strike are not themselves hardworking members of the British public. But that kind of pitting of workers against one another, and particularly pitting of workers against striking workers, is a tactic that the Tories are going to use. And as part of that, they're going to, I think, deliberately refuse to come to the negotiating table in order to prolong periods of failure and to prolong periods of distress in order to create a sense of disorder. I think we're going to see the government reaching for a lot of the shiny new anti-protest public order legislation that they've passed. And this is actually a place where we can really see some of the anti-policing and sort of movements that have a kind of slight abolitionist bent coming together with the labor movement and understanding that there's a real intersection of interest there and that a lot of the expansion of policing powers that are done under the guise of fighting crime actually get weaponized against the labor movement, as we are going to see. And whenever the the government talks about deploying the army, it's always essentially a way of virtue signaling this kind of strong state against, you know, disruptors um, in a way that kind of tickles a very particular fancy in the British mindset. And, um, And so I think we can see a lot of those tactics being escalated and deployed. And it's really important that the labor movement learns from what happened in the 70s and learns from other successful strike movements and labor movements around the world in order to figure out how to deal with those with those tactics. But at the same time, the fact that those, those strike-breaking tactics are going to be deployed so heavily and the fact that we see Rishi Sunak so pressed in that, that, that PMQ segment that we showed, it's because there is a latent power there. You know, there is a nascent potential power in this labor movement that is not only in the sectors that we see have often had have traditionally had 
strong organized labor movements like the rail sector, but in sectors that have not gone on strike in a century. I think that that is, it's, it's so powerful, so latently powerful, not only because of the obvious threat that it poses to kind of the, the established order of things, and not only because so many people are going to have sympathy because it's being felt so broadly. It's not being felt in just a few workplaces. It's being felt so broadly across anyone working in the public sector and people working in the private sector as well. But I think also because we are living in the middle of so many overlapping crises, the cost of living crisis, we're still kind of in the COVID crisis, the Ukraine war, we're living in so many crises that really expose that there is something systemically and fundamentally wrong um, with the way that our political and economic system is established. It's been like an x-ray on kind of the most dysfunctional parts um, of our system. And so there is this sense that this expansion of the political imagination, particularly because these, these strikes aren't just about defending what we have, but actually about demanding something better and demanding something. They are offensive. They're not defensive. That there is really the labor movement is expanding the political imagination of what we can demand and how we can use our power. And at this moment, when we've had so many crises that have clarified for so many people that there is something deeply and fundamentally wrong, that is a latent and deep threat to the Conservative Party. So we should be on guard for the deployment of those anti-Labour weapons, but also see it as a sign of our own power that they are going that they are going to go so far to push uh, a lot of those lines. Next story. In his leadership campaign, Rishi Sunak pledged not to build more onshore wind farms, but now he's been forced into a U-turn. The Financial Times report this. On Tuesday evening, Sunak said the government would consult on changes to the national planning policy to head off a potential rebellion by his own MPs, including Liz Truss. Under the proposals, onshore wind farms would go ahead if they could demonstrate local support and address any negative impacts identified by the local community. Councils would no longer have to pre-designate the location of wind turbines in their so-called local plans, which they are required to draw up to set out their economic priorities. Now, that's all a little bit wonky, but the effect of this would be to reverse an effective ban which has been in place on onshore wind since 2015. David Cameron introduced that in response to pressure from NIMBY backbenchers. They were concerned they didn't want these wind farms in their constituency. And then the law ended up being if a single person objects to a wind farm, it can't happen. That's why it's an effective ban. So on the face of it, this U-turn, this reversal is a welcome move. But Ed Miliband said the U-turn doesn't go far enough. I'm afraid that what they've announced will still leave, uh, even if they go ahead with it, and this will apparently take months, it will still leave onshore wind in a almost unique position in relation to planning. So it'll be harder to build onshore wind than incinerators or landfill sites. Now, why is that so ridiculous? It's ridiculous because onshore wind is one of the cheapest, cleanest forms of power Mm. we have. It's supported by the public. So Rishi Sunak has been pushed by some of his backbenchers into a partial change of heart, but it isn't nearly enough. The Green Party MP Caroline Lucas also has concerns about the announcement. She said this on Radio 4. There is a real risk that this announcement around onshore wind is going to be linked to announcements probably later today or later this week, which will see the government give a green light to a new Cumbria coal mine, the first new coal mine in Britain for 30 years. 
Now, if that goes ahead, no number of onshore wind farms will be enough to counteract the damage of a climate-busting, backward-looking coal mine. And if it is the case that essentially one group of MPs are being bought off uh, by an announcement on onshore wind in order to be able to let a dirty coal mine go ahead, that I think would be absolutely shameful. So we have now had an announcement on that coal mine. We will be going to that new development in one moment. But first of all, I want to show you an interview I had earlier today about whether this was just a quid pro quo and whether the reform to onshore wind planning goes far enough. And I spoke to Ali Warrington from the climate NGO Possible. I started by asking her why we ever had a ban on onshore wind in the first place. Onshore wind is very, very popular. It's clean, it's cheap. It's a really kind of keystone technology in the clean energy transition that we need. Um, but at the moment, it's virtually banned. So there's a virtual ban on new onshore wind projects in England. And I think that arose really because there's been some um, dislike from some sections of the Conservative Party from onshore wind. Um, you know, people think that they don't look nice. And there's also, a you know, a quite an unfounded concern um, that people, that their constituents don't like the way that wind looks. But, um, you know, this, there, there wasn't really much, you know, reality behind this concern, even back when the, the wind ban first came in. And, you know, right now, the, the data is really, really clear. People across the UK really, really like wind. You know, there's something like only 4% of people are opposed to onshore wind, which is absolutely tiny. You're at a campaign group, so I'm sure you sort of speak to politicians. It seems there's a bit of a factional war within the Conservative Party. So it was, it was backbenchers who forced David Cameron into doing this onshore ban, but people who sort of thought their constituents wouldn't like wind farms. Now you've got another set of backbench, back, backbenchers sorry, sort of forcing Rishi Sunak to overturn the ban. How should we understand what's going on with the Conservatives when it comes to wind power? Yes, I mean, I think what this shows is the Conservative Party is still split on on wind. And, you know, it's quite frustrating to see this because the UK is in the middle of an energy cost crisis. You know, at the peak of the crisis, wind power was 10 times cheaper than gas power. And, you know, so the fact that some Conservative MPs still think that this is, you know, a terrible thing that they have to resist at all costs really is quite confusing. And, you know, the UK is facing the climate crisis, you know, it's facing the prospect of people going cold this winter, um, people being pushed into poverty because of unaffordable energy bills. And it is really quite mind-boggling that some Conservative MPs are still so, you know, aggressively opposed to, you know, the introduction of a sensible planning system for wind. And, you know, no one is suggesting that wind should be built in, in inappropriate places or in places where communities don't want it. But at the moment, even communities that really want wind, that want to do their own locally owned wind projects, aren't able to do that. It's just a really, really ridiculous situation. Labour's shadow climate secretary, Ed Miliband, I mean, he sort of, in a way, welcomed the U-turn, but he said it hasn't gone far enough and that it's still going to be pretty difficult to get permission for onshore wind. Is that your assessment as well? Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, the government has basically acknowledged that the the virtual ban cannot be allowed to start. And so that is positive. But at the same time, the, the changes that they're actually willing to make are really, really very small, very slow as well. So if they do what they've said they'll do, there will be a slight easing in restrictions in May and some new wind projects will be able to come forward. So in England. So, okay, yes, this is better than nothing, but you know, it's not a, 
you know, it's not a wholehearted embrace of the opportunities and the potential of onshore wind or of community energy or of renewables. It's the slowest and the most reluctant step forward that I think the, the government could have possibly done. So, you know, in that respect, it is really quite disappointing because we need so much more. We could do so much better than this. And, you know, this would be popular. It would be um, good for the UK economy. It would certainly be good for people's energy bills, it would cut emissions. And the slow pace of change that the, the government is willing to allow is really, yeah, it's disappointing. And another politician, Caroline Lucas, has sort of suggested that even if this U-turn is a good thing, it might be a quid pro quo with other conservatives who want a new coal mine in Cumbria. And so he's sort of saying, okay, I'll do this one little good thing for the climate if you let me off when I say yes to a coal mine later in the week. I mean, is that your analysis? Do you think this could be in exchange? He's saying, okay, we'll have some onshore wind, but the deal is we'll also get a coal mine. I mean, that would be completely shocking and disgraceful. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. But yeah, that would be absolutely appalling. Um, You know, it's really, really clear that there is no case at all for new coal. You know, the the industry that the government have claimed this coal mine is for have been very clear that they don't want it and it won't help them. Um, There is absolutely no climate case for new coal. We need to be closing existing coal mines, um, if anything. And I think, you know, if the government thinks that they'll be able to get this coal mine through without opposition, you know, public opposition, just because they've said, okay, maybe we can have a little bit more wind at some point over the next year or two, then I think, you know, I don't think people will be happy, happy with that at all. And, you know, it is still the case that even if the government do do what they've said they will do to ease the blocks on wind, it will still have a tighter planning regime than for new coal mines like this Cumbria project. Again, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there is no public support for coal. There's a huge amount of support for renewables. And you know, the energy crisis that is pushing people into poverty in cold homes at the moment is caused by fossil fuels. The last thing we need is more dirty energy. And where is Britain in general when it comes to the energy transition? I mean, I think it's, you know, at some points this year, the majority of our energy was coming from wind. It seems like there was, you know, the change was a bit quicker than we might have expected five or 10 years ago. Like, I mean, where would you rate us? One out of 10. Yeah, it's a really tough one to put a numerical value on. I give this maybe about a five. You know, there has been some progress. The grid has, you know, more renewables on it than it used to. And um, there's been times when the grid has been um, largely powered by renewables for periods of time, which is fantastic. But there is scope to go so much further. The, you know, the government should be showing ambition in getting us off dirty, expensive energy as quickly as possible. You know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be lingering over this because um, energy is something that is relatively easy to decarbonize and it's actually cheaper to do so. And, you know, decarbonizing other sectors like um, heat and transport is going to need a huge amount more clean power. So this really is something that the government should be showing much more urgency and ambition on. So that was Ali Warrington from the NGO Possible. Now, as I've suggested, since doing that interview, a decision has been made on the coal mine in Cumbria and it has been given the go-ahead would be the first new coal mine in Britain for 30 years. And this is a reporter from The Guardian on the decision. Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, gave the green light for the project on Wednesday, paving the way for an estimated investment of £165 million that will create 500 new jobs in the region and produce 2.8 million tonnes of coking coal a year, largely for steelmaking. The mine will also produce an estimated 400,000 tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions a year, increasing the UK's emissions by the equivalent of putting 200,000 cars on the road. 
the vast majority of the coal produced will be for export, as most UK steel producers have rejected the use of the coal, which is high in sulphur and surplus to their needs. Where these exports will go is uncertain, as most European steelmakers are turning away from the use of coal and adopting green methods such as electric arc furnaces and renewable energy. It's my favourite bit. The government said the mine was possible within the UK's climate legislation, which requires the UK to reach net zero emissions by 2050, as operations will shut down by 2049. Dahlia, is this a sign of a government taking climate change seriously? They say, we, we said net zero by 2050, so we're going to open all these coal mines, but we're going to close them on the 31st of December 2049. Doesn't, I, I don't think that's quite how this works, is it? It is suicidal to be commissioning a new coal mine now. One thing I often say when news like this comes along is that we have so much forward thinking work to be doing right now. Like the the job of decarbonizing our economy, not just our energy system, but our entire economy is a huge task, like involve a lot of investment and a lot of really good planning. And the idea that given we have under 10 years to put in the necessary mechanisms and policies to prevent the worst excesses of climate breakdown. The idea that we're using the preciously small time that we have not to do that big picture thinking and that planning work of how are we actually going to manage this transition, but fighting over whether or not we should open a new coal mine is completely, it is criminal. It is a criminal waste of our time. And I actually was speaking about this this coal mine yesterday when I was on Politics Live and the mayor of Copeland, who is a really strong advocate for this coal mine, his name was Mike Starkey, I think. And he was on and he was talking about, you know, why this is so important because it's a jobs creator. You know, he was saying that these jobs are urgently needed and, uh, you know, we have no right to deny this job creating industry from entering. You know, he didn't even bother to try and argue that this coal was going to be useful for the British energy system, because as you've said, the um, the British steel industry, the chief executive of the Materials Processing Institute has said that they are not interested in this coal. It doesn't meet the needs of the steel industry. So this is all going to be exported to other countries. But the whole kind of climate versus jobs argument is really important because it's going to come up a lot as we start to talk about, as we start to fight for a transition to um, a decarbonized economy. And really, I think there's a few things to think here. Firstly, the fact that we are having to, that we are allegedly having to commission a new coal mine in order to produce jobs shows an incredible failure, political failure on a governmental level, because there are so many jobs that could be potentially available in a just transition, particularly the skills of workers who are currently in the fossil fuel industry. They have a lot of technical skill and expertise that can be redeployed in a just transition. So the idea that there's no job, that it's climate versus jobs is a complete misnomer. And it's a, it's a fabricated line that is used by a government that has not had the political will or the political skill to develop the kind of industrial strategy that the whole industry is waiting for. Both employers and workers are waiting for the industrial strategy that will show us how we will do a managed transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to a clean and green economy in a way that doesn't sacrifice workers and workers' rights. That industrial strategy is absent. And so 
They're just commissioning this coal mine using this false climate versus jobs narrative in order to cover for their own incompetence. And not only that, but a lot of the time, these jobs that are created by the fossil fuel industry, they're not good quality jobs and they're not sustainable jobs. Like when you see there, then they say, oh, it's fine. We're going to wind down operations by 2049. Okay, that might seem like a really long time away, you know, like just under 30 years away. But it shows that this is not the kind of industry, not the kind of job creation that will hold together communities across generations. These are unsustainable jobs. They are typically very precarious jobs. When you speak to workers that are currently in the oil and gas industry, many of them have considered leaving the industry in the past several years because the working conditions have gotten so bad. And particularly over over COVID, many oil and gas workers were fired without access to furlough. So these are bad quality jobs. And the government, through its own incompetence and through its own lack of political will, is missing this golden opportunity to create high quality, sustainable jobs, whilst also creating a greener economy. And so we're not looking at climate versus jobs here. Under the Conservative government, we're looking at this dystopian image of crappy jobs and a crappy climate plan. And so I think that it's really important that we don't allow. And it's important also to understand why workers are concerned and why workers are anxious about what a what a transition to a green economy can look like. Because when you look historically, when we've seen big shifts, big economic shifts, for example, deindustrialization under Margaret Thatcher, typically these shifts have happened in the name of a greater sort of economic reason. But in reality, what it's looked like for local communities is complete abandonment. You saw the closing down of mines um, in the 1970s, and those communities were just left with nothing. And so I understand why workers are nervous, particularly given that we are under a conservative government that doesn't give, you know, a flying F about workers' rights and what happens to these communities. So it's really important that as the climate movement, the climate movement builds that trust with workers, but also pushes the government to produce that industrial strategy that will outline how we can do that managed transition from a fossil fuel based economy to a green economy in a way that not only doesn't sacrifice workers' rights, but actually boosts workers' rights and takes us away from this extractive, capitalist and horrendous um, industry that not only has destroyed our planet, but has also destroyed and has a strong record of of union busting and destruction of, of workers' rights. Let's go on to our next story. Left-wingers like us often get annoyed when news hosts just focus on the disruption caused by strikes instead of the reasons workers strike in the first place. One political editor this week, though, was brave enough to tell the truth. Robert Peston is ITV's political editor, and this was his analysis of the latest offer to RMT rail workers. What's going to happen? Who's going to blame first? Because we've got the RMT boss tonight accusing the government of blocking any progress. So one of the striking things is... That a different bit of the rail dispute involving network rail, one union has settled for 5%, and even the RMT has put that offer to its members. It's recommended they reject it, but at least it's gone to their members. Now, that was 5%. The rail delivery group, this is the big dispute that the RMT is saying no to, well, they're offering 4%. Now, 
in real terms, that represents a huge pay cut. Inflation running at 11%, you know, basically they're asking the government, or not, not the government, but the employers backed by the government are asking railway workers to take a 7% pay cut. And, you know, they would argue they've been taking pay cuts in real terms for a long time. And they also complain about the quality of the service they provide. And this is something out here throughout the public services. You talk to nurses, they talk about years of pay cuts and declining services. You talk to teachers, you talk to the, you know, fire, uh, officers. Wherever you look, you get this heartfelt complaint from people providing vital services that they're just not valued anymore. And they say the government just doesn't get it. Now, we, the public, are suffering uh, when these strikes go ahead. For what it's worth, when I talk to those at the RMT and in the industry, I don't think they want this thing to go on for much longer. They're losing money apart from anything else, and they don't want to ruin everybody's Christmas, but when I saw that 4% offer yesterday, I thought the government, for some, for whatever reason, knew that this was going to prolong the strike. Maybe they think it's politically good for them. At the moment, unless the government and the employers move, I can't see us avoiding those strikes. Fair play to Robert Peston there. I mean, as I said, we, we, we showed on uh, the start of this show some BBC coverage of the, the crisis in the the ambulance services, you know, there's there's good journalism going on everywhere, but especially political editors, I think, the people who sort of cover this from the standpoint of politics, what they're always focusing on is disruption. Oh, there's this disruption. Will this be bad for the Tories that there's this disruption? Is Mick Lynch really Mick Grinch? And you have to ask him, do you feel bad about these people missing their trains? Then you get someone on from, you know, the nursing union or from the people representing the ambulances. I said there isn't, no, I think with the... No, there obviously is a nursing unit. Who's Christine McEnay? She's at Unison. But different people represent all of these people in, 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 in industry. So sometimes I, I lose track. But they, they get on people who are representing these workers and they're sort of saying, how much damage is this going to do? How much damage is that going to do? Do you feel bad? Do you feel bad about this? How are you going to stop someone who has a stroke from getting a, an ambulance? And they'll say, why have you felt the need to go on strike? You know, They so rarely ask that question. But I think Robert Peston put really well there that you know, he put front and centre there the reason people are going on strikes. And also that the government clearly aren't trying to avoid this, right? If, if you offer people a 4% pay increase when inflation is at 11%, why are they going to agree? It doesn't make any sense. If you have any leverage in your job at all, as the RMT do, why are you going to accept a real terms massive pay cut? And more evidence that the Tories wouldn't um, or don't seem to be interested in a deal and wouldn't have expected the RMT to agree to the 4% offer is the conditions that were attached to it. So this was tweeted out from the RMT Twitter account. So this is sort of their summary of the condition. So I don't think it's sort of verbatim from the, you know, a, a deal that was written down for them. But according to the RMT, the key points within um, the employer's proposals were that all workforce changes are accepted without reservation or industrial action, the closure of all ticket offices and displacement of all retail staff, creation of a new multi-skilled of new multi-skilled station grades, a mass job severance program, driver-only operation of trains in all companies and all passenger services, new arrangements for mandatory Sunday working, a review of all on-train catering services leading to cutbacks in provision and jobs, review of fleet grades working practices and depot driving, flexible working contracts, working and rosters, mandatory adoption of new technology with no payment, new attendance management scheme, review of stood-off arrangements, new annual leave and sick pay arrangements. So essentially, Take a big pay cut. And also, um, we want you to accept that 
a bunch of people are going to get made unemployed. Your conditions are massively going to change and you won't get to strike because of that because you've signed this deal. Why would anyone sign that deal? Now, and, you know, Robert Peston is not like a raving lefty. He's looked at that and said, of course, of course they wouldn't sign that deal. And clearly the Tories knew they wouldn't sign that deal. Dali, what do you make of this? Why do you think the Tories would actively be provoking the RMT? Well, what they've done there is they've offered a deal that they know that no union in their right mind would accept. And I think that that, that was quite deliberate because that way, again, that classic tactic of pitting the so-called general public against striking workers as if there isn't a clear cross-section between those two groups. And the way that they do that is by saying, well, you know, we, we, we offered them a deal and, and they're not, they haven't taken it. And it's because they're just ideologically driven. They just want to cause disruption. They want to ruin your Christmas, blah, blah, blah. And because, you know, they rely on the fact that journalists like Robert Peston aren't going to talk about those finer grain details about like, okay, what would signing that deal actually look like for the future of those workers? Why wouldn't those workers want to sign a deal like that? And they rely on the fact that journalists typically don't go into those finer details and that people aren't going to kind of know those technicalities. And so then the, the, the thing that they can, then that they can take away from that is my Christmas travel plans are disrupted and the workers are to blame for that rather than the clear fact, which is that the government has created and, and bosses have created a completely unworkable conditions in the sector, leaving these workers with no choice but to pull out their leveraging power in order to get better conditions. And the fact that hearing this from Robert Peston, because let's not forget, you know, as you said, Peston is not this raging lefty and he didn't even really bring his own sort of analysis or spin so much to it. All he did was literally state facts and just be like, this is what this deal means from a worker perspective in hard numbers. This is what a real term, this is the, the kind of real terms pay cut it means. This is the percentage that it evens out to. And the fact that that is so unusual to us is such an indictment of our media and how it covers um, industrial relations. Because essentially, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, journalists allow themselves to essentially only be briefed by the government and by bosses. And the fact that it seems like Peston has, for once in his life, allowed himself to be briefed by the unions and to say, look, this is what this struggle looks like from our point of view, that is, it's almost the exception that proves the rule. And that's why, you know, the fact that we have Polly at Navarra as an industrial relations reporter um, is so important because it's a way of countering the fact that only the lines of the bosses and the state get printed pretty much. But I also want to like put this into perspective and the fact that like Peston has not been, you know, radicalized or anything. He's still like a lot of other mainstream journalists is fundamentally like drinking the Kool-Aid of the bosses and the Tory government. You know, last night he went on this whole rant about how, well, not rant, but kind of like this really ill-informed Twitter thread where he talked about how, you know, the government can't pay public sector workers more because they've run out of money and it would basically create a wage price spiral. Those are two bona fide economic myths that are peddled by employers and the government in order to justify the fact that we haven't seen a real-terms pay rise in so long. The British government doesn't run out of money our entire global financial system is basically set up 
to ensure that governments like the British government in the global north can extract and create money for things that they want to spend money on. You know, if they can come up with 300 million to pay Michelle Moan to make some PPE that doesn't work, they can find money to pay public sector workers for the essential work that they do. The problem is that the government that we live under doesn't want to pay public sector workers a decent wage. And I think, you know, with, when it comes to that question of, you know, the, the kinds of lines that the government uses in order to justify why it doesn't pay public sector workers what they deserve, it's important to remember that the Conservative Party doesn't believe that a public sector should really exist other than in a very small number of cases, because the government see that the Conservative government see, for example, the fact that we have a public health care system as essentially a way of gatekeeping money-making opportunities from them and their rich mates. They don't, they don't like the idea that we have, like some parts of our economy are in the public sector. So the reason, so why would they therefore be interested in subsidizing and paying for and improving that sector? What they want to do is engineer crisis and dysfunction in order to lay the groundwork to try and privatize at least parts of these sectors and open up and unlock the sector to become a lucrative money-making um, asset for them and their class. And of course, you know, the wage price spiral, which Robert Pesson also brought up there, complete myth, wages don't drive inflation. This is a supply side issue. And especially wages don't drive inflation when wages have been so low for so long. They have not risen with inflation for so long. So, you know, Robert Peston, I guess, a broken clock is right twice a day. He is still very much embedded in the kind of ways of thinking and the ways of narrativizing the economy that are in the interests of bosses and the state. And for once, he seems to be taking a brief from the, from the workers rather than the employers. But ultimately, like the fact that this shows us how dysfunctional our media is when it comes to things like labor labor issues. It reminds me a lot of that amazing clip, um, and I'm going to say it because it's Noam Chomsky's 94th birthday, so happy birthday to Noam Chomsky, but that great interview between Noam Chomsky and Andrew Marr where he talks about how, you know, establishment norms become parroted so much by the media, and, you know, Andrew Marr was sort of very offended by this. His personal sensibility was very offended, and he sort of said, Oh, you know, do you think that I only that I only say things that are told to me from above, that I take orders from above, and that's why I say the things that I say? And Noam Chomsky said, No, I don't think. I think that you think you truly believe everything that you say. I just think that if you didn't believe the things that you believe, you wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't be a senior journalist in the BBC. And uh, you know, Robert Peston, despite his kind of moment here of, of clarity typically and continues to very much represent like all like most other mainstream journalists to represent that kind of model of um of propaganda essentially that that we are stuck with in in the media in this country the one to listen out for on the news reports i love they always say they do this especially on the bbc they say workers have rejected a five percent pay increase which they say is a real terms pay cut it's like no, it is a real terms pay cut. Like you don't have to be particularly good at maths. If inflation is eleven percent and the pay rise is five percent, then that is a real terms pay cut. You can't say the, which the union say is a real terms pay cut. No, it's a real terms pay cut. The union say they're not going to accept it. 
but don't make it seem like whether or not this is a real toes pay cut is just a matter of opinion. Surely there are enough people working at the BBC that someone can work out that that is a real toes pay cut. Thank you, everyone, for your comments tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.